strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language, I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. I'm your host, Carl Dowling. Great to have your company today. We are coming to you live from the Calm Radio Studios here in Ubuntu, Alice Springs on Aranda Country. We're broadcasting uh, right across uh, the nation on Vast Channel 911. We're also coming to you online via our website on karma.com.au and, of course, on Aitken FM here locally in uh, Alice Springs. Today is Tuesday, the 23rd of July, 2019. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully you're having a great morning. We've got a lot of uh, show, a lot of great stories coming up on the program this morning. Uh, As we did mention in our news, calls have come for the dismissal of a Northern Territory judge following comments which have been labelled as violent racist by a Northern Territory senior barrister. We'll be hearing from uh, him very shortly. Also, uh, we're going to head down, head up, I should say, to the Gulf of uh, Carpentaria where an innovative program is bringing war veterans and Aboriginal men together to help each other deal with mental health traumas they face. Also, we're going to be heading down to Tasmania, where we uh, push for two representative seats in uh, Tasmanian Parliament for Aboriginal people is continuing to progress there in the state. We'll be hearing from uh, veteran Aboriginal rights campaigner Michael Mansell about that uh, this morning as well. We're, of course, as well going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. We're going to be heading into our first story very shortly, right after this quick break. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices. We're going to head into our first story of the show. Northern Territory Judge Greg Borshes has received criticism for wording used during the sentencing of an Aboriginal woman in April. Transcripts from the court revealed the Northern Territory Judge said, Yesterday was probably pension day, so you got your money from the government. Abandon your kids in that great Indigenous fashion of abrogating your parental responsibility to another member of your family and went off and got drunk. Northern Territory Senior Barrister John Lawrence is calling for the dismissal of the Northern Territory judge following the comments, which he has labelled vile and racist. They're vile because they're racist and there's no place for them in any aspect of Australian society and they shouldn't be tolerated. All manifestations of racism, in my opinion, should be eradicated as promptly and effectively as possible. The fact that a judicial officer, a judge, is espousing this kind of disgraceful attitudes is deplorable. And it renders this judicial officer clearly unfit for office, and he should be removed as soon as possible. Because as we all know, and I'm sure your listeners do know, this isn't a a single instance. This particular judge has been coming out with this kind of stuff for literally years. He's also a notorious judicial bully with practitioners, 
as well as their clients sitting behind him in fear. And he's been caught out as a subject of several complaints over many years now, most of whom have been found to have been established. He's been ostensibly dealt with by the chief judge of the magistrate's court, uh, Dr. Lowndes, which involved reprimands, uh, placing on probation, preventing him sitting, I think it was in the Youth Justice Court in Alice Springs, but he's been sitting in the Youth Justice Court in Tennant Creek, as well as a local court in both Tennant and Alice Springs. And he's basically now on the equivalent of what you say is probation. And he's come out with these comments, which are not isolated. There have been several instances which formed the subject of that article in last week's Guardian. And so he needs, obviously, to go. And the Attorney General uh, has that as her responsibility to carry out a prompt investigation into this continuation of this conduct, gather sufficient materials, and then go through the mechanisms that's available to every jurisdiction, which is and how to dismiss a judicial officer, which isn't easy, of course, for all the right reasons. They enjoy a particularly strong security of tenure in order to make sure that they are independent and protected. But there are instances such as this when they're clearly unfit for office. Their behaviour on the bench is inexcusable. And for the legal system to retain any integrity, it should deal with this matter as promptly as possible so that we don't have the likes of this ever again. And as you mentioned, this has been uh, happening for quite some time. I believe he was sanctioned back in, in 2017 uh, for what was described yeah. as, as harsh and gratuitous commentary and inappropriate judicial conduct. Why don't you yeah. think we've seen the things change and comments like this continue to come out? Well, I mean, he illustrates, sadly, an ever-increasing level of racism in Australia generally. This kind of conduct would have been unimaginable basically 10, 15, certainly 20 years ago from any judicial officer, I would shudder to think what previous judges of the Supreme Court or indeed magistrates of the magistrates' court from 10, 20 years ago, would, how they would react to hearing that a judge is behaving like this. It's just ridiculous. So I think it does illustrate the general decline, deterioration of standards in the Australian community. And And I'll tell you what is equally disturbing about this is it would appear to date there has been very little complaint or objection to this kind of behaviour or this behaviour from the agencies you would expect, namely, if not the lawyers themselves who are just soldiers at the coalface doing their best in the circumstances, their employers uh, don't seem to be commenting on this at all. And I can't for the likes of me work out why not. They should be complaining about this. The Criminal Lawyers Association are smudging around with comments about it being unfortunate. I mean, really, the Bar Association has done nothing. Even there's an onus, I would suggest, on the Director of Public Prosecutions, whose lawyers are in court watching this on a fairly regular basis. They should be taking action to prevent this. There can be no place for this type of racist conduct coming from a judicial officer. It it perhaps is mirroring what we saw, sadly, last week with the documentary on Adam Goods, where we saw the the treatment that he received from Australians, which was deplorable. The lack of action 
taken by people whom you would expect should have taken action, whether it was his fellow players, his club, uh, the AFL itself. The documentary reeked of people feeling guilty and sheepish about the fact that they didn't do anything at the time. And that seems to be what's happening here at the moment. I, I for the life of me, cannot work out why. But, but even the land councils, you know, Aboriginal organisations that are representing people, the stuff that he's saying about Aboriginal people is vile. And um, once they get to know, I mean, I, I suspect a lot of Aboriginal people don't know what what he's been doing and saying. And I, I suspect that once they do know, at least that the citizens themselves are going to be uh, appalled and, and will be demanding. But the, the organisations, the formal, normal uh, organs that you'd expect to be taking action uh, against this, uh, 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 the silence is deafening at the moment. And what, what particular message do you think having someone at that level saying, making these sort of comments, having that particular conduct, what, what do you think the message that sends in, in terms of our justice system here in the Northern Territory, do you think that can potentially make people lose faith in it, in a sense? Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine this going on in Sydney or Melbourne? It undermines completely the integrity of the legal system. It makes it a laughing stock. That's why actions required in swift action. The Attorney General hasn't received a complaint. You see, this is the point I'm making. And if she hasn't received a complaint to trigger an investigation and a procedure that can affect his dismissal, then she should get one as soon as possible. Um, and that should be laid by uh, either the lawyers that have been treated like this or the clients that the lawyers are representing or indeed the Criminal Lawyers Association, the Bar Association or, or any uh, upstanding body that's involved in the, the criminal justice system. So that's what should happen. If it's going to lie in no man's land and tread water on the pretext that there hasn't been a complaint, that reveals to me that this judge is unfit for office, but also the legal system, if it can't deal with it promptly and effectively, then it's broken as well. And that's a, that's a real worry for Aboriginal people. who, so let's face it, tragically make up most of the lists in both the local court and the Supreme Court. That was uh, Northern Territory Senior Barrister John Lawrence there speaking here on uh, Strong Voices. We're going to go to a quick break now and then we'll be right back with our next story. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. For the last five years, the Kapani Warrior Program has been running in remote communities in the Gulf of Carpentaria and York Peninsula regions, bringing together Australian war veterans and Aboriginal men with the aim of giving each cohort of men a safe place to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder faced by the vets and intergenerational trauma that a lot of Aboriginal men face in their communities. Dr. Dr. Timothy White, one of the founders of the program and a veteran of the Somali conflict, spoke with Karma's Damien Williams about how the program came about. We were a group of veterans met for a reunion in Townsville and we were talking about a lot of the problems that we were having within our cohort around suicide and alcoholism and domestic violence and uh, we were looking at ways in which we could better the lives of veterans. And Anyway, a lot of discussions came about and uh, I've lived and grown up in Aboriginal communities all my life, so the discussion sort of 
came around that and I said, look, the only people that veterans really compare to in terms of you know, mental health issues and, and trauma in particular were uh, Indigenous men in, in, in communities and, and, uh, and that kind of conversation led to maybe we could do something together, put those two groups of men together and, and come up with a, with a collective uh, program that, that had benefit for both, both groups. And that kind of what started, started where we are today, you know. What sort of things do you do uh, in the program? Basically, I've got a uh, whole group of veterans with, with a, you know, a skill set in training, men you know, and highly qualified, highly skilled veterans that have served their country and, um, and mentored and, and, and coached men in war. And that skill set then basically uh, at the end of their service goes home and, and uh, there's no real avenue for them to use that skill set and it's kind of lost, you know. So we felt that it was quite a waste to have that those groups of uh, veterans sitting at home with that skill set and not being used when, when there was huge need for, for those skills and, and that training and that mentoring in, in remote communities, you know, you know, the men were desperate for it. So what we did, we, um, we then partnered up with the Army, with the Northern Surveillance, the 51st Battalion, and our aim was to, to get guys job ready for Army uh, Northern Surveillance uh, using the veterans as the training group that got the guys job ready. And in the first year we had, um, or the first community we went to was Woodjil Woodjil, we got 22 guys uh, from our program into uh, in Northern Surveillance Unit from Woodjil Woodjil. Then we moved to Arakoon. We got the same result, Dumaji, um, Yarraba, and uh, we continue to um, to move around the communities. And so that's sort of like a more like a defence force sort of thing. No, not at all. No, no. Kapani works in partnership with defence. We support defence, and what we provide job-ready applicants to Defence Force. So it's the program that we run, and we, when we've done our program, we hand the graduates of our program over to Defence. Uh, our graduates have an 87% pass rate for recruit entry once they get into Defence, but um, our program has always been about us running the program with veterans, so Defence members don't run the program. Uh, Defence members don't um, participate in, in, in the running of the program. Defence just benefits from the outcomes of the program. What kind of change have you seen in some of the young fellows that uh, go through your program? Uh, what we see is, well, significant reductions in domestic violence to the point where we've had 157 graduates into defence service. We've got a 1% recidivism rate on domestic violence, uh, which is remarkably lower than the mainstream population. We see... Right across the community, significant reductions in public nuisance offences, you know, the cruising up and down town, yelling out, drunk and all that sort of stuff. That stuff fades away because the, the men, the cohorts of men, you, you know, are setting examples and, and being role models in the community. And as a consequence of that, there seems to be a collective improvement in, you know, community behaviour and public nuisance offences. So we're seeing improvements of about 60 to 75% in, in different communities. So that's sort of like um, military sort of uh, training type thing, you know, helps with the, yeah, setting, setting examples and, and role modelling? Well, it's about purpose, you know. If, if you give a man purpose, a real legitimate purpose, and, and give, that, give that man pride in what they do, you know, that's why it's called the Warrior Program because... You know, a warrior is someone who provides and protects and, and, and has pride in that. Our program is about bringing out 
that pride and, and purpose, and through that, people are supported. Now, a big a big proportion of our guys that come into the program have got fairly lengthy histories of incarceration and, and violence, and their options have been quite limited. What defence enables us to do is act as advocates for those individuals that do our program, and we advocate for the participants, and the military accepts that advocacy, and it shapes a big part of the, the military's decision-making around taking these people into service. Otherwise, that just simply wouldn't happen. I'm just finding it hard to try and, um, you know, uh, try and be sensitive and try and ask questions properly. And, um, you know, I think PTSD is a very um, unspoken of and and not a lot of people understand what it really is. And, uh, you know, people who, who have never suffered from it don't understand what it is is are these young guys helping uh, a lot of the veterans as well sort of um, ease definitely, and try and definitely. deal with it's it two way street you know our young blokes that come into the program we recognise their trauma because because you know we've lived with trauma you know, we've lived with PTSD and we recognise it in these guys um, you know a lot of the young fellas that we see have seen significant trauma you know uh, uh, domestic violence and and uh, uh, you know, just the the horrific lifestyle of living with alcoholism, you know, in, in the family. Um, um, the, the guys have lived that, and, and they've they've suffered uh, because of that. What that happens is it affects their behaviour and affects their um, their sense of well being. It, it, it affects their um, their sense of future. Um, my guys, my, my veterans, suffer similar, well, the same, but, you know, we're a long way down the track. You know, a lot of my veterans are Vietnam veterans in their 70s, and, and over years they've learned ways to cope with it, and and, and, and as a group they've, they've pulled together, and, um, and they're learning uh, and healing that they've acquired over 50-odd years. They're able to apply that and, and, and coach these guys into identifying ways to, to heal, heal as well. And because and you know, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. I've never experienced um, that kind of uh, life in that as well. But um, you know, does that give a lot of the veterans a chance to sort of, um, yeah, pass on their knowledge of how they've sort of, you know, been able to cope with it as well, and and um, yeah, pass that knowledge on to those young fellows as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. So it gives it gives the veterans a sense of purpose too you know and, that, and that's kind of where the meeting in the middle is you know the veterans have a lot of knowledge and um and they can use that knowledge and apply that knowledge and they can see see the results see the healing you know so it's, it gives them a sense of well-being a sense of sense of purpose you, you know the veterans make a difference and they say it and uh the guys involved in the program make a difference to the veterans and they say it too has it just been um, sort of uh, uh, people you've served with? I mean, you said there were some um, other veterans that are, you know, from Vietnam and that kind of thing. Yep. Uh, have you sort of, is it the kind of guys or, you know, the people that you've um, worked with or is it all kinds of veterans? Well, well, it first started out with Somalia veterans and um, guys that I served overseas with. And then it got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, um, some Vietnam veterans said, hey, we want to get involved, and then some young blokes from Afghanistan, these team all said, hey, we want to get involved as well. So at the moment, you can sit around a camp out bush with us and, and, and you basically span from Vietnam to current wars. 
And I mean, you know, we were talking on the phone earlier about you and, and the program, you know, not wanting to to really sort of show yourself off or whatever but uh, you know it is really important well I see it as important uh, that uh, this is helping you know our young Aboriginal mob and then um, a lot of our veterans as well I I think it's very important to yeah share that and do you do you sort of see that side of it yeah look it's a funny thing you know because veterans yeah, uh, I mean, we the army is very tribal, you know, and um, and you know, I grew up out, out west in Mount Isa in Calcutta country, you know, and and there was ways of doing things, you know, that I, that I grew up with, and when I joined the army, a lot of these things were familiar, you know, the tribalism was very familiar, you know, but one of the things that you know, when I grew up, one of the important things you never did in a group was dignate yourself, you know, never talked about yourself, never self promoted, you know, and. Um, Calcadoon culture is very much deeds, not words. Don't tell me how deadly you are. You shouldn't have to tell me how deadly you are. I should know how deadly you are. So one of the rules we have in our camp is you never talk about yourself. I can talk about everyone else. And I can defend myself when someone's talking about me, but I never initiate a conversation and say, hey, brother, I'm, I'm so deadly, you know, because nobody wants someone being known themselves, you know, and that's a really important part of of protecting our, our guys too, you know, to don't big note yourself um, because if you big note yourself, someone's going to cut you down. But if someone's big noting about you, then celebrate that, you know, because if someone, someone's proud of you, they're going to talk about you, you know, and, and, and celebrate and acknowledge that too, you know, that don't ever talk about yourself. So, and that, that kind of, we've been very sort of unwilling to self-promote because of our innate desire to protect uh, our mob, you know, our tribe, our veteran tribe and our community followers tribe, you know, keep it tight. The Pony Cup on the weekend was the first time we'd actually come out of the dark and celebrated the, the amazing achievements and where we've got to, you know, um, and and uh, you know, someone's saying, "Well, you know, this is this is amazing how, how you've done this, and you know, you've done it so quick." Well, no, we've been doing this for five years, you know, sitting in bush camps around campfires, sleeping with swags on the ground, you know, coming into communities at night when everyone's asleep and grabbing our guys, you know, so that nobody sees what we're doing. I think that adds to the success or the good that's already been happening. Is it has been quiet and it has gone under the yeah. radar. Yeah, definitely. What well, one of the criticisms that I've had is that that we um we don't self promote, that we we don't ever ask for anything. And veterans and and community men are proud. You know, we don't want to put our hand out begging for stuff. You know, we, we're happy to go without without it uh, if it means not asking. If that makes sense, you know, we try and find solutions to solve our own problems. But if someone offers, we'll accept it. You know, mm. but we tend not to ever ask for anything because we try and find a solution ourselves. You know, people say, well, if you don't ask, you don't get. But there's kind of a tendency for us not to ask and try and find the solution ourselves. And that's kind of why we've been very, very covert. And you kind of wonder why, you know, people people are reluctant to sort of jump on board with a project like this because it's, it's new and it's innovative and something different. But this week, you know, we had the most amazing success up in Aracoon with the Kapani Cup, the Bush Skills Pentathlon. The Governor General was calling it the, the Bush Skills Olympic. And it was something. It was something else. It was really, really good. Our whole aim was to promote the amazing skill set that guys got in communities, you know, the, the ability to problem solve and, and survive in, in the harshest environment in Australia. And that's a skill set that we recognise as, as defence members, ex-defence members, you know, the ability to survive in the bush. and. And, you know, you work for a mining company and, or you're working out on a remote drilling rig somewhere. And when stuff goes wrong, you want guys that have this innate ability to survive and, and these guys have that and that's what we want to celebrate. That was what the Pani Cup was about. Like you were saying earlier, the similarities between the Aboriginal tribal culture and the military tribal brotherhood as well, do you think that's one of the reasons why it's sort of been able to work so well? 
Yeah, definitely. If you have a look at the military, we've got our own tribes and our own clans. You know, I came from tribe army, clan group infantry. We've got our own songs, our own dances, our own stories, our own totems. We've got our elders. We've got our oral histories. And what comes with that is, is a huge sense of pride and, and belonging and, and, like you said, a brotherhood. And so... This program isn't about offering a Cert 3 in underwater basket weaving. This is about inviting you to join my tribe, and, and that's for life. You join the Army, you're always a member of the tribe. You can always uh, you know, go on Anzac Day and, and be equal with everyone else from the tribe. There's uh, a great song that John Sherman just put out, uh, John Sherman from Red Gum put on, on every Anzac Day. And he was here on the weekend performing that song in Arakoon. And in the song it says, in the army there's no black or white, there's just khaki. There, there is no colour, everyone's the same colour. And, and, and that's, that's always been the case in the military. Uh, look, our plan is to move right across northern Australia. We, we've been in the Cape and the Gulf, and our plan now is to get up into the Territory. We're going to head over in September and start working with some communities there and, and get some veterans on the ground working in communities. What we do, we, we do a lot of cross-colonisation, so we bring you know, the Yarrabah team up to Dumaji or the Dumaji team up to Arakoon and and we, and we move the guys around just to, to just to increase those networks and, and build a, a stronger tribe. So uh, we're going to try and expand more territory this year, this coming year. That, that's our plan. So hopefully we'll be over there and you'll see our trucks driving around. And, and uh, you know, any veterans out there that are interested in, you know, using your skill set and getting out in the community and just working with amazing guys and, and really seeing positive change, get on our website and click me an email and uh, you'll be certainly followed up. On that note, uh, Dr. Timothy White, uh, um, just wanted to wish you uh, and the project uh, all the best and uh, great luck. And, and uh, yeah, and I also just wanted to say, yeah, thanks very much for joining me here on Calm Radio. Yeah, no, my pleasure. That was Dr. Timothy White, one of the founders of the uh, Kapani Warrior Program, ending that report. Stick around because we're going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and uh, Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country right after this. Strong Voices. You're listening to Strong Voices this uh, Tuesday morning. Great to have your company today. I'm very happy to welcome into the uh, studio here live for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country, uh, Damien Williams. Damien, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Carl, and good morning to all our listeners out there. Well, Damien, I understand you have a story this morning in regards to a uh, language app. Yes, um, uh, this language app... um, is the first one of the um, oh not first but uh, has is a two way real time language translation app um, that has come about uh, from the the Purple House who does dialysis um, for a lot of people um, Barbara Nambajimba receives dialysis three days a week at Purple House here in Alice Springs. Um, and, but for her last six months, she's been regularly visiting the clinic for a second reason. She has been teaching a computer how to speak Pintubi Luricha, uh, her first language. Uh, and in the Western Desert language, Pintubi Luricha is spoken by many of the patients at the Aboriginal community-owned Purple House. And um, this week they launched the Wanga Kuchu, the, f- the first real-time English-to-Aboriginal language translation app, um, which has been used by patients and their medical teams there as well. Um it's a uh, with speech to speech capability the app is able to translate spoken english into pidgin to be luricha um meaning a patient does not need to be able to read in order to understand what is being said as well so um yeah it's it's been going uh for 6 months um uh 
linguist and developer of the app, Brendan Kavanagh, has held twice-weekly sessions with nurses and Pindaby literature speakers to teach the app uh, not only basic phrases, but the very specific medical terminology that nurses um, use at the Purple House uh, and needed to be communicated to patients. Because, um, uh, you know, for a while, um, nurses had to often... Um, oversimplify uh, medical terms and stuff like that and when you do that a lot of it a lot of the translation a lot of the meaning is lost through that so especially with you know um, medical terms and, and things that needs to be followed for example uh, you know um, instructions on, on self-care and that kind of thing and and um, being told uh, you know the number of visits need people need to be doing because a lot of these people that come to Purple House, come from communities that are, you know, out in the Western deserts and a long way from, from help. So it's, it's really important for, for these people to be able to um, hear what the nurses and doctors are saying to them to be able to um, help them as well to, to, get, to get better. Definitely very important, and, and like you were talking about with the language, you know, I'd imagine that it'd be some words that you know don't even have the actual the translation mm. for and things like that. So definitely very important and amazing to have the in real time as well. Would be yeah, it'd be really cool to actually see that operating. I think, and we have seen, you know, there are a number of those out there, but um, I think this is the first one in in an Aboriginal language, which is pretty amazing. Mm. Uh, Good morning to you as well, Paul, here in the studio Good as well. morning. Uh, what story do you have for us this well, morning? Well, it's uh, down to uh, Tasmania, and we'll be heading back to Tasmania very shortly, but uh, it revolves around uh, Aboriginal names of places and uh, um, regions, um, the use of the Aboriginal names and uh, a revised policy released by the Tasmanian government last month means more Aboriginal groups in the state will now have a say in how to name the features around them. Uh, it draws an example of uh, sandstone rock shelters sitting on Tasmania's Mount Wellington were built by Aboriginal tribes thousands of years ago, uh, but it was only in 2014 that the mountain started officially being called by its Aboriginal name Kunanyi. Uh, the name comes from the Aboriginal language of Palawakani, which has so far been the only language used in the gradual process of reviving Aboriginal names for these states' culturally significant sites. Um, the article, uh, which came from um, Slight Magazine, uh, which is looking at uh, regions around Australia, um, mentions now uh, that while uh, Tasmanian Aboriginal people have um, praised the state government move to reset its relationship with the island's Aboriginal population, um, it could serve as a template for government policy nationwide. So um, basically, um, Tasmania uh, is pushing ahead with a greater involvement of local Aboriginal people um, in a, a 
dual naming policies, um, which began in 2012, gives Aboriginal names to geographical features that already have European names, so that both appear side by side on signage maps and official documents and publications. So it is something that we're seeing starting to happen across the country. Uh, I think there's still a long way to go. And again, even uh, when we look in our own backyard, um, um, certainly around Uluru and Ayers Rock, and, um, you know, I mean, Uluru is, uh, has been uh, uh, formally acknowledged now for uh, a long time, but there are so many other features um, in and around Central Australia that also need to be uh, recognised. Yeah. Mm. Well, on that note, uh, Paul, Damien, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go to a quick break now, and then we'll be right back. Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices, and now we're going to head down to Tasmania, where a select committee is examining the merit of restoring the island state's lower house to 35 seats from its current 25. Under a proposal put forward by several of the state's Aboriginal bodies, Tasmania's parliament should have two designated Indigenous seats. Chair of the Aboriginal Land Co- Aboriginal Land Council of Tasmania, Michael Mansell, joins Karma's Paul Wiles to talk about the process. This broad discussion about a voice to the parliament that flowed from Uluru has created an opportunity for Aboriginal people around the country to come up with something that's very practical and which gives people a voice inside the parliament where the decisions are made. And we noticed that the Tasmanian parliament, which was previously 35 members strong, was reduced in 1997 or 1998 to 25 and now there's a parliamentary committee set up to take it back to 35. So the whole basis for taking it back to 35 is to expand the political representation of people in Tasmania. And so we went before the panel and said, well, if that's the basis of the expansion, how could you do it but not include Aboriginal representation in the parliament and they said oh okay yeah we agree with that why don't you just stand for political parties and we pointed out that any aboriginal elected through a political party is compromised because their primary loyalty is to the party that got them into the parliament in the first place what we're talking about is aboriginal people elected by aborigines and who are accountable to the aboriginal people uh, and the only way that can be done is through designated seats. The panel was very interested in the proposition. Uh, the public discussion down here in Tasmania is very positive. People are, can, can see the principle. Well, why is it that after 200 years, the Aboriginal people still can't be guaranteed a voice in the Tasmanian parliament? As we know with the Uluru Statement from the heart, there are always going to be blockers put in place. Uh, Talk of the third tier of parliament that wouldn't work. I mean, you obviously got a much better response than that. You must be expecting the the blockers will come, though. Well, the first thing is to understand what the current national debate about the voice really is about. At Uluru, no one mentioned an advisory body. People were talking about a voice to parliament, meaning there should be some powerful political input in the decision-making of parliaments because those decisions affect Aboriginal people and our rights. Since Uluru, 
the interpretation of that statement has been watered down to mean an advisory body, uh, a body that can't deliver services, doesn't deliver any land, doesn't distribute any funds, doesn't have a budget to distribute, can't even decide its own composition because the government would do that for it. In other words, it sits outside the parliament and could give advice to people who are probably not going to listen. I mean, how many times, how many reports sit on the shelves gathering dust? How many advisory committees are there now? And do they ever get listened to? The answer is no, not unless the government wants to use them. You can chase that down the rabbit hole and end up nowhere after the next five or ten years of discussion, or you can adopt the the more realistic position, we need to be in there, inside the parliament where the decisions are made. And you don't have to wait for a constitutional referendum or a treaty. There's nothing stopping Aboriginal people all around the country going to to their politicians now and saying, we want Aboriginal representatives in the parliament. The possibility of having uh, dedicated uh, Aboriginal voices in Parliament. Again, when we look at the the workings of the Australian Parliament, I mean, people can stand as independents or for any party that they like. And what we do see is the creation of power bases. Again, the very top end, I think there would be a great fear amongst the major political parties of adding another threat to their sustainability by putting more voices in there that may not agree with what they're doing. Yes, but Barnaby Joyce is one person who's from that very conservative sector who's already said the way that people are elected to the Senate isn't working properly because people out in the bush, including, he says, Aborigines, are not having a chance to be voted into the Senate. So there you've got a very influential member of the conservative sector of Australian politics who can see that democracy isn't working the way it's supposed to be in a representative democracy. You can't have a representative democracy if most of the people are not represented. And representative democracy will always be diminished so long as the original people of the country who had everything taken off us are denied a guaranteed voice inside the parliament. So that's a a very strong principled case that we can argue. And uh, it it just seems to me, based on what I've seen the last couple of days down here in Tasmania, that the expected resistance is not as strong to the idea that Aboriginal people should be guaranteed a voice in the parliament. The question is, how can that voice be guaranteed? And in New Zealand... They say, well, designated seats have worked here for 150 years. Bolivia has seven seats in their national parliament. The United States Maine Assembly has three Indian seats. So if other democratic jurisdictions can do it, there is no logical reason and there's certainly no constitutional impediment to have been done in Australia, including when we talk about the Senate, having out of the 12 senators elected from each state, one of those could be an Aboriginal elected by Aboriginals. So each state still has 12 senators, but one of them must be Aboriginal, which gives us a guaranteed six Aboriginal senators in the federal parliament. And look, it's out of 226 politicians, 
Clearly, it's not a large number, but at least you get people in there who, who if they're worth their weight, could stand up and agitate for Aboriginal issues every time the Parliament sat. And they could also do it in between parliamentary sessions. Michael, um, what you're feeling now, does, does it feel different? Very different. We've never got to a stage where the public debate seems to be accepting of the idea that Aboriginal people should be represented in the Tasmanian Parliament. We haven't got to the next stage of convincing the the very conservative Tasmanian government that they should accept this idea. We think the parliamentary panel that will make its report to the Tasmanian parliament probably uh, in the spring session of the parliament and then probably in the November sittings the Tasmanian parliament will consider their proposal for 35 seats plus two Aboriginal seats uh, if the panel recommends it. We expect that debate has a 50-50 chance of getting up. Now, if you'd have asked me uh, a couple of years ago, I would have said, look, we have that right, but it it ain't going to happen to a stage now where it's on the cards that the Tasmanian Parliament could be the first in Australia to legislate for designated Aboriginal seats. If that possibility does eventuate representation, how would that process take place? Yeah, it would be run on the same lines as ATSIC did. When ATSIC, on the mainland states, there were a number of divisions in each state and territory for a number of ATSIC commissioners. But in Tasmania, there was only one, and that was done on a statewide basis. So in Tasmania, the... Tasmanian Electoral Commission in a forthcoming election would call for Aboriginal people to either stay on the general role or go on to the Aboriginal role to either stand or, or elect Aboriginal people to those two seats. The Aboriginal voters could not be on both the general role and the Aboriginal role, one or the other. Uh, it would mean that the Aboriginal politicians who were elected would have to serve the whole of the Aboriginal community in the whole of the state, whereas within each of the five divisions of the breakup of Tasmanian electorates, they would have seven representatives representing the white people. And so there'd be a lot more work for the Aboriginal successful candidates, but the whole idea is, well, look, all right, we've got to grin and bear it. It's not going to be as good, it's not perfect but if we can get a couple of people into the parliament and they are decent and they agitate for Aboriginal issues this is something that's been missing for 200 years Strong Voices Richard Ilkerton